0: Welcome to the Data Leadership Lessons Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Algman. Data is everywhere in our businesses, and it takes leadership to make the most of it. We bring you the people, stories, and lessons to help you become a data leader. We've partnered with Dataversity to provide listeners with 20% off your first training center purchase with promo code AlgmanDL. Go to dataleadershiptraining.com to learn more. Today on episode 93, we welcome Nick Jordan. Nick is the founder of Narrative a platform that helps businesses in a variety of industries reach their goals using transformative data technology. In other words, he guides them through systemic data monetization, acquisition, and sharing, whether they work in retail, finance, hospitality, healthcare, automotive, or agriculture. Additionally, he says spent most of his career in product management roles at global technology-driven companies like Adobe and Yahoo. Nick, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Anthony.
0: So just take a few minutes and give us kind of that story, high-level story of your career and how those earlier experiences you had led you to doing what you do now.
1: Sure. So, you know, I think from the time I was probably eight or nine years old, I I always wanted to be, this is before we called them software engineers, I wanted to be a computer programmer. I mean, I remember picking up, you know, books in the library uh, or, or at bookstores about how to program and see and Pascal and sort of teaching myself. Um, and so you can see I might not have been the most the most popular kid in school uh, at, at, at that point. Uh, and so that led You're me among into,
0: friends here. Yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> and, and so that led me into a degree in computer science. Um, i I you know left college and got my first job as a as a as a programmer, as a software engineer. And I realized pretty quickly, you know, probably within the first twelve months of, of that job, that you know I really wasn't passionate about writing code. I really wasn't passionate about taking someone else's vision and, and, and you know bringing it to fruition. Uh, and so from there, I, I really transitioned into more product management roles. And, and you know one of the reasons I did that is it it sort of spanned the business side, so the you know go to market and sales and strategic decision making with the technical side. And I think. And for the most part, maybe my you know one of my superpowers is being able to sit on both sides of that and, and and sort of bridge the gap between the technology parts of the organization and and the business parts of the organization. Um, so from there, I you know I worked at Yahoo for a number of number of years out out in the Bay Area, and that sort of you know really taught me what businesses look like at scale. You know, I know I know Yahoo today is not the sexiest company in the world, but in the In the early 2000s, it certainly was, you know, one of the the internet behemoths. I then got recruited to come to a startup, and I kind of learned what a company with no resources looks like and and how hard it is to, to, you know, go from startup to a a, a company that's worth hundreds of millions or billions of, of dollars. That company was acquired by Adobe. I spent some time at Adobe. I then went to another startup. And, and really, all of these things led me to where I am now insofar as a lot of the companies I worked at were, were very data-driven organizations. Um, and I realized what my real passion was, was for solving problems. Uh, I, I like to tell people that once I see a problem, I can't unsee it. Um, and so in, in my last company, before I started Narrative, you know, I, I, I saw a problem. Largely, the organizations were becoming more data-dependent. And with that dependence, there was more, you know, sharing and trading of data amongst organizations, but that that entire process sucked. Um, And in my naivete, I just assumed someone had solved that problem. So I spent, you know, three, five months looking for someone that could help me with the problem that I was experiencing myself. Didn't find anyone that checked the box. And so I said, you know, hey, if you're so smart, you know, maybe you should start a company that solves this problem. And, And here we are with narrative.
0: So before we dive into what narrative is all about, I love your backstory of you came at it from a technologist's point of view or in your early days. I also saw this. I was driven by business problem solving, which is clearly a thread that that you've had throughout your career, but I had kind of the opposite approach. I started by saying, I don't want to get, I love the technology stuff. That stuff's really interesting to me, but I don't want to be a coder. I don't want to be the, the, the person just banging out the, the, the requirements and, and the features of a, of a software application or data application. And I didn't really understand in those early days, like you could have a career in technology with a business focus, but I, I actively avoided all the technology stuff until I got into the workplace and I'd, I'd swung my pendulum way too far to the business side. I was like this business generalist coming out of liberal arts and I had no actual marketable skills. So then I had to go to the, the business organizations and actually find that technology depth that I didn't study. Because it was the other half of that equation, so I just find there's an interesting parallel to the way I had approached my early career and the way you'd approached your early career. Because then I would, I totally understand this pull towards product management and and product design and like connecting to the things that actually make sense for a business in uh, the the markets and and with an actual functioning organization underneath you. And so I'm I'm really curious because I've certainly seen in in my various travels throughout my career, how data and the kind of, I don't want to call it just data monetization, because I think that that's not enough. It's it's about how do we capitalize on the value of data throughout our organizations to, in in our relations with our customers and our relationships with our, our own operations and our own people, and then with other organizations that we may find opportunities to do business with, how do we leverage these data assets in a way that creates the most value possible and that's kind of what my career and what data leadership lessons and most of the things i do tie tie back to so i'm curious uh, because you've touched on it but i really want to dive deeper into the story of narrative what are those problems that narrative exists to solve and how are you taking an innovative approach in, in doing that what was missing and and kind of tell us more about that journey
1: yeah and so you know i think. I think in terms of evolutions, and so I, I think even the concept of me saying, hey, you know, I could, I could, you know, speak business and I could speak technology, I think that was somewhat novel 15, 20 years ago. I don't think that's sure. entirely novel at all. Like, you know, I think all all companies of all stripes have basically become technology uh, companies over time. So, now you don't have the technologists and the non-technologists, like every company is, is you know, filled with people that sort of think technology first. Um, And and that's been an evolution over time. In fact, at one point in my career, I worked uh, for a web analytics company called Web Trends. And I remember when I first started working for them, we sold into the CTO. We said, well, the the person that's building the website needs to know how many people are coming to the website so they can add more servers if a lot of people are coming to the website. And while I was there, there was this huge transition. It was like, actually, websites are not for the technology organization, they're for the marketing organization, right? And, yeah. and historically, those are the two organizations that are, that are the farthest apart. I think we've seen that sort of in all of a, a varied set of technology disciplines. I think we're actually now seeing that with data. I think within large organizations, often data was seen as, oh, the data team is going to take care of that. Or, you know, that has something to do with the, you know, the nerds over in the corner that, that like data. But now data is becoming sort of horizontal within any organization, and it's key to marketing, it's key to finance, it's key to R&D, it's key to supply chain management. And so just like technology used to live in a silo and was thought of as, you know, something that helped but was kind of orthogonal to the core business and now is the core business, I think data is coming to that same place. And I think one of the problems that you have when you do that is, one, you have a bunch of people that, you know, are not subject matter experts in the thing that we're talking about, data here. And I think too is is, is anything becomes more valuable within the organization, you really need to build a, a strategy that, that helps you harness that value uh, in, in one way or another. Um, and so you know, a quick one-on-one on what narrative does, we effectively build software that makes it easier for organizations to collaborate uh, on data across multiple organizations. So I'm a retailer, and I want to work with my brands to figure out which products and which SKUs sell best in which stores, so we can have a, you know, a distribution strategy that that takes advantage of that. Um, and and the real challenge is that data is incredibly complex. You know, it comes in an infinite number of forms, and you know, at the end of the day, it's just ones and zeros. And you now have a, a universe of people that are trying to leverage data that are not analysts or data engineers or data scientists Um, and so uh, i think ultimately what we've done is built a software platform that we can put in the hand of a business user that lets them harness the value of this new asset data whether it's on the on sort of the supply side or or on the demand side and work it into their you know everyday workflows uh, especially as those workflows evolve as if you know they were using a CRM tool, or if they were using sort of, you know, an ERP system or any other tool they might use as part of their general day-to-day practice. So
0: I love the mission. The mission makes sense. I'm like, how in the world are you solving this? Um, Because is the functionally is narrative a, is it, are you doing like data governance types of things or master data types of things? Are you doing a lot of. AI model behind to try to help people navigate a data environment? Like what what is the functionality that is enabling the answer here? Because I love the answer. I'm just not following how we, we connect it all.
1: Yeah, it's um it's interesting because I, I think part of the DNA of narrative is to not look at how other people do things and try to do it ten percent better or five degrees different. So we kind of we kind of attack things from a purely like let's what is the best solution for this problem as as we can imagine it so uh, you know in some ways it's hard to point to something and say oh we just do this and this and this and it's done but on the other hand i think what we've gotten better at over the last five years is taking some concepts that are leveraged in other places taking the best parts of those and combining them into this net new thing mm-hmm. so honestly the easiest way to think about narrative is as a as a software platform but more specifically as a database. So in the same way you might think of Snowflake or Databricks or Amazon's Redshift or MySQL or any, any other database, we, we operate a database. And, and that database has a lot of very similar concepts. Has a table that you can create and you can write data into it. It's got a query language. Um, you know, It's got data set statistics that help with things like forecasting. Uh, and and you know the one piece of real magic that we have in the platform is something that we call Rosetta Stone, and the the, the thesis is pretty easy. You know, if you get any two people in a room that speak different languages or or, or they're speaking in in their second or third languages, the conversation is pretty pretty disjointed, pretty pretty difficult. If you were to get 50 people in a room and they all spoke 50 different languages, it's basically chaos, right? You know, you you can't get any information across. And so this piece of technology we have that's called Rosetta Stone sits on top of this database and it semantically classifies all of the data that that gets written into the database. So no longer is it a field with a name and a value. It is a, you know, it is air temperature. Or it is uh, event timestamp, or it is geographic location, um, and it's that ML that sits in the middle that does all of the classification and also um, can apply transformations. Where now everyone can speak their own language. Uh, a buyer can come into the platform and say, "I'm, you know, I need some weather data to understand how weather is impacting my crop yields," mm-hmm. and they can say, "I want, you know, soil temperature, air temperature, latitude, longitude, timestamp." but I only want it if the latitude and longitude is you know, within one of these zip codes uh, that I care about. And our system knows how to find all of the people that work with us that have those data sets, whether they refer to air temperature in Fahrenheit or Celsius or Kelvin or something else. We basically normalize everything in the middle. Uh, so from, from the, the person that's running the query, they just get the data they want without all of the complication that they would normally have to go through.
0: Is that, that middle air 'cause you're you're speaking my language, no pun intended. Um the I understand the, the kind of high level architecture that we're talking about here. It sounds like you're using uh machine learning models or AI models to to populate that. Is there a human component to that as well for review and refinement? Or is that are you you kind of just saying, we're gonna do the best we can do and this is what it is? Or No,
1: well, so I you know, early on there there was much more human involvement and then as the models get better, and we get more confident with them, uh, you know, more and more of it becomes automated. I was, I was explaining this to someone the other day. So, you know, early on, what we would do is we would, we would do the classification with the machine learning models. Um, we, are, we are technically using a neural network, but I, am, I don't like calling things artificial intelligence. Uh, so we'll, 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 we'll call it an ML model. And early on, it would it would classify everything, and then that would go into a queue, and a human would review it and say, yes, that looks right, that looks wrong, that looks right, um, and and where it was wrong, we would go back and refine the model, or we would manually classify it, you know, out, outside of the scope of the model. For certain things that we're classifying, by virtue of them being easy to classify or us getting very good at classifying at it you know our our precision or you know how how often we get it right is effectively 100% um a good example of that is ip address so if someone writes an ip address into a table be it a, a standard ipv4 or an ipv6 the models can pick that up pretty easy right there's a pretty finite set of formats that an ip address can can take mm-hmm. and so we've gotten to a point that we we literally predict that correctly 100% of the time and so now for that particular classification, we say this is fully automated. It doesn't need to go through the human review cycle at all. When someone pushes a new type of data into the system that we've never seen before, this um, was a good example of this. We had some parking citation data that was pushed in to, into the platform and it had you know, uh, the law that you broke and the, you know, the meter number and just like things that we, our system hadn't seen before. The classifier basically said, I've got no idea what this stuff is. And so that certainly goes into a human review queue, and we're actually developing an ontology, and so it it didn't fit into any of the classes we'd already created, and so we decided, okay, we're gonna create a a classification around a parking citation, uh, or we're gonna create a classification around an automobile. And we did, the, we did the mapping manually, we, you know, we did that, the, the classification manually, but once we had manually classified the data, that data could act as training data. So the next time we see automobile data or parking citation data come in, there's a better chance that we would predict it, um, you know, above a certain threshold. And so it's sort of an iterative approach where there, there's going to be humans involved, and there may always be humans involved to some level but you know as we scale and as the models get better um you know more and more of it will be fully automated
0: i've been saying for a while that the future of data is metadata um which i think just confuses most people but i honestly believe that what's holding us back are these kind of contextual understandings from a, a tech from a technical point of view like as humans we we always interpret anything through some sort of meaning or some sort of story or some sort sure. of context we're not terribly good at capturing that in our technology systems and what we found is we have all of this data that exists and we don't have it situated in the proper context it'd be a lot easier to use if we did and so when I hear things like you're putting an ontology around it to understand natively like an IP address is great because you, I can just You you imagine what an IP address looks like, you know, you got numbers and periods and like, you can see that in a table, even a human's just going to see that in a table, like that's an IP address. I know that's an IP address. You don't even need to look at 20 records and you know that that's what's in that. But it's not necessarily clear. What's that the IP address of, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so we know it's an IP address. It's some sort of object reference to something that exists on the internet somewhere but we don't know what that necessarily means because there's additional layers of context that that can can go to that do you take that kind of mapping or that kind of ontology and like keep pushing out those additional rings of understanding to say oh we know that's actually one of your um company provisioned laptops that is um connected via VPN in a specific geographical area like can can your technology take it to those additional layers or is it something where you're going to understand what it is and then you're going to have to plug in something else to get to those additional layers of detail
1: yeah so we're 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 beginning to get there so today in in what is arguably the most basic version of that you know most of the data that's coming into our platform comes in as is rows of data with you know one to n columns in it and so the initial relationship that will apply is that everything in a row of data is somehow related to each other. So if I get an IP address, you know, along with, uh, you know, let's say, a um, uh, device identifier of some sort, we can say, okay, this IP address is related to this device identifier. Um, we may also get the operating system of that device. Let's say it's an embedded device, like a, like an IoT weather sensor, right? So we might know, you know, the operating system. We might know that it's a weather sensor. We know the IP address. We know the device ID that, you know, often in that record, we're also getting the latitude and the longitude and the temperature because that's what that device does is it measures, it measures those things. And so from a very basic level, we, you know, we know there's a relationship between all of those things, although that relationship is is, you know, uh, static, right? It, there's, there's no sort of additional metadata about that relationship other than all of these things came in together and therefore they're somehow related. The mental model that we use, um, and I think they both get, um, well, I don't think they get any credit for it because if it works really well, no one knows, but if it doesn't work well, then people complain about it. But Google has built what they call their knowledge graph around search. And so, you know, I live in New York city if you search new york city restaurants or big apple restaurants or nyc restaurants or you know city that never sleeps restaurants google has said okay nyc big apple city that never sleeps new york city you know they all mean the same thing and so effectively on the back end i'm going to go search for any any of those th- anything those four terms or any of the other terms that mean new york city alongside restaurant or food or eating out or takeout or anything that they've sort of they've mapped to the, the term restaurant. Um, and that allows you to basically type anything into Google and get back relevant search results. I, I know people you know in certain technical circles that feel like, hey I searched for something that I wanted exactly that thing and Google has assumed that I wanted something else and they're annoyed by it. but I think the vast majority of people just say, well Google search is really good and, and that's one of the reasons why. And so I think the direction we're moving over time is we're going to expressly uh, declare more and more of those relationships um, and have those relationships be part of that ontological mapping and have the machine learning be able to identify and predict some of those relationships more and more. Um, We're not quite there yet, but but that's definitely the direction we're going.
0: And it sounds like there's some, it, it, it sounds a little bit more than just saying, hey, these are similar titles or these are these are synonyms for a particular term, but these are similar but different in some sort of meaningful way. And you can understand some of those differences as you return results because they are nuanced different, but there's benefit in knowing that they're similar to restaurant or, or similar to New York City. Um, and, yeah. Am I hearing uh, uh, you correctly there?
1: Yeah, hundred we, and percent. We, and we already do a little bit of that as well. It's like you, you could have an attribute which is team. And then under team, you could have sports team, or you could have, you know, a uh, business team. And under sports team, you could have football team and baseball team. And under football team, well, football is a bad example. Under baseball team, you could have, you know, uh, minor league baseball team, major league baseball team. And so th- there, there are certainly hierarchies. or These things represent something similar, but there, there is some nuance amongst them. But then you could also have something called stadium. And you could have well teams play in stadiums, and so they're not, you know, they don't represent the same thing at all. But they have a relationship to each other that is important to understand, depending on the problem that you're trying to solve.
0: Yeah, um, I, I love I love the analogy. Like I love thinking about this example. Actually, it's not really an analogy, but the example with stadiums because different sports can play in a different stadiums, and it's something physical that people can understand. And and you start to think about well how the data underneath that is represented and how a technology system can interpret that you you had mentioned you know with the the new york city example uh google and knowledge graphs and so knowledge graphs are an area that i'm i'm really interested in and i will not claim to be an expert well in much of anything really but the, na- 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 neither will i for <laughs> what it's worth <laughs> um but I, I am curious your perspective cuz certainly you're playing in the space uh, much more um directly than than i am i've long thought From my relatively rudimentary knowledge of knowledge graphs um, is that that seems to be a pretty perfect way of representing metadata under most circumstances or or gathering this understanding of relationships compared to where I think still a lot in a lot of data professionals or data technology people still think in terms of relational databases and and mm-hmm. relational tables and columns and rows and 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 joins and, and all of that and I'm curious is the future of capturing and storing this information really in knowledge graphs or is it something where we're better off continuing to use the highly scalable relational databases that we've kind of grown up with over the last 20 years like where where does that really lie technology wise now
1: I, I I think I think they're two different domain spaces. I think how data is stored and how data is accessed need not be the same thing. And in fact, you know, a lot of the a lot of the technology that we build effectively has a layer on top of a storage engine that does that. You know that that does sort of the query planning and <clears throat> tries to figure out what the what the meaning of the request is, if if you will. And so, I'm not saying relational databases are, are the end all be all. You know, there are graph databases, there are NoSQL storage. You know, I mean, a lot of people are, frankly, at this point, are just using object storage in, 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 a, in a cloud provider. I think they all have, you know, trade-offs and risks and, and, and benefits. But I, I do think we need to get out of of the mindset of thinking that you know relational versus NoSQL is the right or wrong answer. It, that seems to be more of a technical question, you know, what what are the right patterns, what are the read patterns, like you know, how effective can you index these things, et cetera, et cetera. I think in terms of how the data is actually accessed, certainly, you know, you'd want to move to a place like Google, frankly, where people, you can go into Google and type something that approximates English in you know, you could think of Google as a big database of, you know, every page on the planet and you know, you're not writing SQL to get that stuff out. And, you know, I'm sure someone knows, but I don't know what their actual storage format is, but they have basically given you an access pattern where you can you know type in what you're looking for and it finds it for you. And it does that not on a strictly, you know, a quality basis, but it'll try to infer the meaning of what you're doing. And I think that's kind of where we need to get to with, with data. I, you know, I find it interesting. There's. When we were first building the company, I you know I kind of look around, want to see what other people are doing, and I found this concept of data catalogs. And you know, data catalogs are, you know, we can tell you the provenance of your data. And if you're looking for a particular field, you can come find that field. And it always seemed really weird to me that you would go into a you know a web interface and you would say, "I'm looking for sales data," and it would say, "Great, we've got sales data in this table in this system, and we've got it in this table in this system, and we've got it in this table in this system." But then you were left to go you know, query each of those systems, figure out how to normalize the data you need. Like it didn't really, it, it was more discovery. It was more, uh, you know, it was like Yelp. It says, okay, here's a bunch of places where there's sales data. Now you've got to go go there. Um, I think we need to move to a pattern where people can say, this is what I'm looking for. And the system instead of says, okay, here's where you have to go do all the work. It just gives you what you're looking for. Um, and I actually think that semantic <laughs> layer, the knowledge graph or, 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 or sort of, you know, truly trying to understand what people want And how to most effectively and efficiently get it in their hands in the format that makes it usable is you know that if that can be done at scale that's that's magical
0: there's you made two points in here that i just couldn't like nod my head like enough on Uh, and i'll start with the the second one first is data catalogs i've long i've given entire long hour-long talks on why data catalogs are incomplete solutions and you really did an eloquent job of explaining that and and even thinking like even something like a, a google maps that you're you're looking for a restaurant what you what you actually care about is getting the meal that you want mm-hmm. everything else is an intermediary and what i like about google map solutions obviously they're not going to give you the food through your computer screen but what they are going to do is help you search for the kind of food the kind of options the kind of pricing the kind of cuisine in, in in the in whether you're looking for takeout or, or dine-in or whatever, and they'll give you directions to the place. So they're going to do pretty much everything they can do except take you to the door of the restaurant you're choosing. Yeah. And that's a pretty complete solution. Data catalogs, on the other hand, for me, I've long said they are an incomplete solution because you're here removed from the data itself. You're looking at metadata. You're looking at, like you said, discovery, trying to figure out, okay, what is this answer that I can go learn this process to then go apply it in something else? And you have this risk of being misaligned with reality and in, in that the data may have changed whereas the catalog may not have been updated. And in the moment that happens, you lose that trust and it's over. And so I'm like, why create a platform where you've by its nature only gonna get somebody 50% of the way to the door of that place? So I I, I love your comments there. I'm not putting words in your mouth, but I've I've had that perspective for a long time. And I think data catalogs are, are just part of an answer, not an answer to themselves. And I don't like that they have become productized as something because you need to do so much more beyond that to actually achieve value. The other thing um uh that that you were talking about uh in terms of the um nature of the question that I asked wasn't actually very good. It's like we need to paint, should we use rollers or paint brushes? And you don't have enough information. It's like it's too uh a uh, blunt of a of a question and uh, and answer that we were trying to get to. Because the reality is, to your point, it's more nuanced. That There's a bunch of different storage mechanisms. There's a bunch of different access mechanisms. And they need to be used in an appropriate way. It's like, okay, are we painting a wall? Are we painting the outside of a house? Are we painting a portrait? The, the tools that we need depend on the circumstances that we're doing. It's all painting. But it's painting with a different purpose, a different use, a different value proposition in mind. And that's where I, I would completely agree with you again. It's like, don't concern yourself so much with the technology or the storage or whatever use the tool suitable to get to the to the mission at hand and i imagine that what you're trying to do with narrative is actually provide a mechanism by where some of those tools can be brought in as the needs arise without the user having to first select anything you're you're trying to remove some of the jumps that a person would have to take to connect them through their data to the value proposition that they have in mind. A hundred
1: percent. And and okay. and you know, and you know, a lot of our customers, most of our customers, almost all of our customers are not technologists. They they need data to do a job. And you know, they're not experts on any of it. And so, you know, our question for them is what is it that you want? And, you know, to to take the painting analogy is if, if if your your house has a bunch of chipped paint and you were to go ask the owner of the house what they, you know, what they want, they would say, I want someone to paint my house. They wouldn't say, I want you to go get a roller and I want you to get some latex paint that, you know, like, you know they, they might give you the color and they might tell you, I want the entire house painted and make the shutters a, a different color. Um, and, and I think, you know, I, I actually think that's one of the challenges a lot of technology companies have is they, you know, they think that their solution is the technology their solution is solving the problem that the customer is trying to solve the the mechanism that they do that with is the technology and so we actually have this conversation a lot internally with both our product and our engineering teams where you know in an early version of our product when someone wrote data into the table we would ask them you know how do you what index do you want to apply to this and how do you want to partition this data and unless you're a DBA you don't know the answers to those questions um, and so then it was like, well, you know, maybe we should just say, which field do you think is gonna be used most often? And then we could apply that index. But oftentimes they don't know the answer to that question either. <laughs> and so I mean, I, you know, we ultimately ended on that is, you know, we should create the table and then we should measure usage patterns, both on the read side and on the right side. And at some point we should decide, you know, based on the existing usage pattern, what are the right answers to those questions? Because you know, what they want is the data to be, to, to be retrieved fast. Or they want, you know, the amount of storage to be minimized to minimize costs. Um, you know, they don't—they don't care about those actual implementations. It's not that they're not important for us from a technology point of view. It's just not what our customer cares about at all.
0: That I mean, that hits at another thing that's bothered me for a long time this whole notion of requirements in technology development like where we're, we're building things in house or what have you and, and we we ask the business hey give us your requirements for this, this application and, and it becomes a very one directional kind of pattern where, where you minimize the real value of kind of either party to understand and negotiate the trade-offs that are inherent with anything that we choose to build or, or choose to to develop and and if we cut off that bi-directional consideration we're going to end up with a worse outcome i mean that's just the the nature of that and so i think that kind of points at, at what you're saying as well it's like well if we think about the tool as the answer we're, we're missing the actual point the actual yeah. value and, and we're never going to be closely as closely aligned with that as we could be otherwise
1: and and we we never ask our customers how they want our product to work and you know, I think a lot of people take that to say is like, we don't care what our customers want. I I, I care very much what our customers want. I, I, I actually prefer it when they talk about their feelings, what their frustrations are, what their challenges are. I mean, it's um, uh, apocryphal, I think, but the, you know, the whole, you know, if someone had asked, or if Henry Ford had asked someone what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, there, there's some truth to that, you know, I, someone says, you know, I, I feel like my data is worth more than I'm getting for it for the people that are buying it. Like, okay, that has nothing to do with how we might solve that problem for you, but that, that gives us a problem to go solve. Let's go, you know, come up with some ways that we could solve that problem and then we'll work with you to see, hey, do we think this problem can be solved this way? We might A-B test it. But but ultimately we're we're trying to solve your problem. We're not saying, oh, you know, do you think we need to add a text box to this to this screen? Would it be nice to have a you know a drop down? Do you think the the nav bar should be blue instead of green? Like none of those things at the end of the day matter. But oftentimes if you ask someone like how should we change our product, they'll You know they'll be like well you know i'd like this to be a line graph instead of a bar graph and you're like well we've we've effectively created no value here um although you know sometimes they feel like they have you know a seat at the table and controlling some of those things but it's not actually solving the problems that they're having
0: this gives me my best opportunity so far to tie into one so like for everybody out there when we have guests on the podcast we always have like some ideas of topics that we might want to talk about or what have you and generally i'll get on the show and just talk about whatever but there's uh, there's sometimes ones that i really want to hit and and there's one on yours that and, and that i really wanted to get to and it, it ties into this notion of people are asking for things or doing things and not really recognizing the value and so i've, I've long said it's like we we continue to chase the data like acquiring more data when we're not even working with the very valuable data that we have today and and the line that that is in, in the suggested topic that I really wanted to talk about is it's data brokers are out transformative technology is in and i'm really curious about that because i think it hits at what we were just talking about as there's this kind of red herring misdirection sometimes that we think the problem gets solved in this one place when really the problem gets solved in in another place and and this has to be related to that so so what do we mean by that and and how what, what do you mean by the the data brokers are out transformative technology is in
1: well and 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 I guess, let me define data broker because there may be a bunch of definitions out of it, but, you know, a data broker broadly is a company that buys data either lightly or significantly repackages that data and then goes and resells it. And, and oftentimes they, they act as a black hole in that, meaning that, you know, the, the people that are selling them the data don't know who they're reselling it to and the people that are buying the data don't know where it comes from. And and the light packaging in reality is sometimes no repackaging at all. It's sort of a purely arbitrage business. I'll buy something for a dollar, I'll sell it for five dollars. In fact, it's even worse than that. I'll buy something for a dollar, I'll sell it for five dollars, and I'll sell it a thousand times. So I'll sell it for five thousand dollars, even though it cost me a dollar. Um I think almost implicit with that is you're buying what, what the broker wants to sell you. Mm-hmm. Right? You're you're not going and 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 Buying what you want, you're not sort of telling anyone what you want. It, it, it's sort of you're, you're you're buying something off the shelf. It's like it's like going into a McDonald's and ordering a, a hamburger. You're gonna get the same hamburger every time. Probably gonna be a little bit of a shitty hamburger. You know what you're gonna get. It's gonna be cheap. Like you're, you're you're good to go. I think as companies become more savvy with data, with technology, I, when it becomes no longer a checkbox they want to check so they can look smart to their boss and their their boss's boss but that a- is actually something that adds value in the platform you actually need a lot more control over the data that you're getting and in, 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 in what you're doing with it um, and so what the narrative platform actually does is it gives you that control it says here's some software that lets you go have all of the capabilities of the data broker and actually a lot more capabilities than the data broker but you're not losing any control, you're not losing any transparency. If your strategy changes, you can change your data acquisition strategy. Um and so uh, you know, I think as any market matures, sometimes having middlemen is good. They become market makers, they get, you know, they create liquidity. But as that as that market matures and uh, especially when the asset that's being worked with is incredibly important, The people need to be closer to the strategy and and that almost by definition, that means not working with the, with a middleman. and so, you know, we are very focused on giving back control to people that want to work with data. And to your point, if their goal is just to say the word data in a PowerPoint presentation, they probably shouldn't work with us. They probably shouldn't work with the data broker either. So shockingly, you can write data in a PowerPoint presentation, even if you're not doing anything with, with, with data, you put a big green check mark right next to it. Um, but I, I, I do actually, I've been heartened over the last couple of years. that data has turned in from a, from a buzzword where people thought it made them sound smart to something that companies are actually leveraging at scale across entire organizations. And I think just with that sophistication, they need technology to help them do that. Well, they don't need a middleman that's trying to take most of the value chain for themselves.
0: Yeah, I think that's a, a wise observation.
1: In the last minute or so that we have,
0: before we need to go, um, anything else you want to, any words of wisdom, any other things that we didn't cover that you think is important for the audience to hear?
1: Well, I think going back to your your, your earlier comment, you know, data is not a silver bullet for any problem. Uh, there is a level of data maturity that an organization really needs to get to, to really get... A ton of value out of data, um, and that data maturity often needs to happen not within a single team, but across the entire organization. I actually think a trend that that we've been seeing in, in larger organizations, but I think it's starting to trickle down to smaller organizations, is is the hiring of a chief data officer. Um, and I've gotten the question a couple of times: What is a chief data officer? And to be clear, in every organization, it's probably a little bit different, but I think of them as is somewhat analogous to uh, the chief technology officer, like I talked about before, you know, technology used to be sort of this little thing that didn't cut across the entire organization. It, you know, it was, it was its own silo. And now the chief technology officer is really interfacing with everyone else in the C-suite. Right. If you look at a, you know, a chief human resources officer, same thing. We, we hire people on every team within the organization. You know, the chief human resources officer is there to make sure that we have a, uh, you know a cogent and coherent strategy on how to do that and, and how to you know manage talent across the entire organization. I and mean, I think you know the more that, that data becomes important to everyone having a chief data officer is a really good strategy for companies to take. And again, not so they can have a team that no one ever has to talk to or, or look at over in the corner. But so they can, they, them and their team can start interfacing with all of the other teams in the organization to start thinking about how they implement holistic data strategy. Um, five years ago, almost no one was doing it. Mm -hmm. Two years ago, we started to see a little bit of an influx. I think, you know, 2023, 2024 is where we, you know, probably see. Thirty to sixty percent of, of the Fortune five hundred companies implement a chief data officer, and then I think it naturally trickles down to, to smaller companies from there.
0: Yeah, I think I think you're you're right on, and and I think that people that have been in the kind of CDO circles for a while um, may have a warped perspective on how prevalent it actually is. I think we're still very early in that journey towards a truly accepted chief data officer. And, and most organizations, I still think most are, are struggling with even some of the, the basic things that some of us have long since forgotten about. And it's, like, oh, data governance, everybody has that. And there's plenty of organizations out there that don't even have data governance, certainly don't have uh, chief data officers.
1: So And I think the chief data officer, depending on the organization, they're like, oh, chief data officer, you must be the analytics person or you must be the governance person or you must be the you know, whatever. Whereas really data, it literally touches everything. I, I, I actually like the, the human resource officer example the best because you're not like, well, we don't hire people in the marketing team. Like, of course you hire people in the marketing team. Like it's literally across the entire organization. And I, I think people still silo data um, just by virtue of, you know, they use it every day, but they might not even think of it as is data. Um, and, and I think the explosion of sort of true ml and and data becoming a more pervasive part of everyone's lives will certainly change that and it's an ongoing thing like you're never
0: going to be done with data there's always going to be more there's always going to be new needs you're going to be doing this stuff it's like the idea of being done with data is like the idea of being done with people like it's about the same likelihood right so i think um yeah so nick it's a great thank you so much for, for coming on the show today it's been a great conversation what's what's the best way for folks to find you
1: well, if they want the non serious part of me, you can find me on Twitter at nick underscore Jordan. Uh, you know, it may be not safe for work at certain times during the day, so I apologize for that. Uh, and then beyond that, I'm on LinkedIn. You know, people can connect with me there and then, uh, you know, feel free to send me an email address or an email at, at nick at narrative.io or just go to our website at narrative.io if they want to learn more. Outstanding. Nick, thank you for being on the show today. Thanks for having me.
0: And thank you all for joining us today. As always, you'll find more information and all the links in the show notes. So, and go to dataleadershiplessons.com to subscribe and check out our past episodes and accelerate your journey with training at dataleadershiptraining.com. If you're enjoying data leadership lessons and are interested in electric vehicles, check out my new podcast at electricdrives.us. We give you the information you need to transition to your electric vehicle future. And as always, stay safe during these unusual times and go make an impact.